Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review, as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. Now, on to this episode of Autism Stories, in which I will interview Sonny Hallett about being part of a committee that developed a report regarding the problems with mental health for autistic people, their work as a counselor, and how to identify trainings that are actually helpful to autistic people. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Sonny, thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, thank you. I wanted to start out and learn where does your story in the autistic community begin? It was quite a few years ago now. I realized that I was autistic, or that I was likely to be autistic in my late 20s. I'd, I got together with my partner, Fergus, and they, a bit about autism at that point, and we sort of started talking more about autism, and I was their mum. Dinah, I think, noticed that I was likely to be autistic and kind of encouraged me to engage in some online communities, mostly actually through, she asked me to sort of help out with an online forum of autistic people. And I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but (laughs) I saw what people were saying and thought, gosh, that sounds a lot like me. So that was the start. I then went a sort of did a bit of thinking about it, went for an assessment. I kind of felt like it was sort of useful for me personally at that time to have that diagnosis as validation, really, but and also to sort of access support. But since then, I've thought a lot more about autism. Yeah, that was the very beginning. Now, Dinah was an amazing person, but, you know, when someone says they might, they think you might be autistic, sometimes people have different responses to that. So what? how did you kind of take that information or questions that Dinah had? I think that was the thing, was that neither Dinah nor Fergus actually said to me that they thought I was autistic. Whether on purpose or, you know, kind of just unintentionally, I was kind of exposed to this world. And I feel very lucky, actually, because it was so many people are sort of, you know, come into contact with information about autism through a much more sort of pathologizing lens. But I was fortunate to be in this environment where people were talking about autism in a much more progressive way without sort of shame or pathology attached just as a way of being, which obviously, you know, can come with challenges. But it meant that I was sort of shielded, I think, at that stage from a lot of the sort of potential kind of internalized ableism and stuff that might have come up have to deal with that later but yeah so there weren't any questions asked it was more I remember the moment Fergus and I were on holiday and I very very anxiously like broached this question I said Fergus do you you think do you think I might be autistic I was you know I sort of never said it out loud before and I was quite worried that about the response but 
yeah, it led to some great conversations about neurology. And yeah, of course, like Fergus had already thought that. So. <laughs> now, you, you were a chair for AMAZE, the Autistic Mutual Aid Society Edinburgh in which all of your members and the committee are autistic themselves. So Amaze came out with a report regarding the problems with, with mental health for autistic people. What were some of the major problems that the committee found in regards to autistic people getting the support they need from therapists? Yeah, so that report, we sort of put that report together because we noticed that there were, at that point, anecdotally trends in the community, which, you know, both I'd experienced and other people had experienced around not being able to access mental health services and also sort of having very negative experiences if they were able to access mental health services. So we wanted to see basically, you know, how much that was anecdotal, how much that, that was a trend, what was going on. And that was very much what we found in our we, we sort of carried out a survey and um, I wrote up a report around it which was that autistic people in the sort of I mean we I think we mostly restricted our research to Scotland at that point were trying to access mental health services often in crisis and a shocking amount of the time people were being turned away from services purely because they're autistic so services would say we're, we're sorry we have nothing for you because you're autistic or they would be on a waiting list and then they would get a letter saying you're autistic so we've taken you off the waiting list the other barrier that would sort of come up when people accessed these well if they did manage to access services either the services would not be able to accommodate them so it would be something like you know it might involve a travel like involve travel across busy town centre when the person was not able to do that or it might involve kind of being in environments that were sensorily incompatible with the individual or it might be sort of actual kind of issues with the professionals not having relevant or some understanding or not believing the individual when they even said they were suicidal so a whole range of issues really in both access and in actually getting any help out of services. Now, I don't like to talk about problems unless I'm trying to come up with solutions for them. So, in the report by Amaze that you were just talking about, there were several recommendations to improve mental health support for autistics. One of those recommendations was creating route for newly diagnosed autistics to access the right kinds of mental health support. What are some ways to support someone once they've realized that they're autistic, whether by diagnosis or self-evaluation? Yeah, I mean, one of the sort of big reasons why people come to realize that they're autistic or, or you know, that they receive the diagnosis is usually because they're struggling with something and that's that's not the only way but that is often the way because people are kind of feeling at odds with those around them or they're or they're struggling with a work culture for example or dealing with mental health problems and you know whether they get a diagnosis of autism before they know anything about autism or whether they come to realize they're autistic it's usually that's kind of the catalyst the mental health difficulty is often the catalyst 
one of the things that can be really useful, first of all, is if a person was to receive a diagnosis, it's actually really important, I think, for them to be offered mental health support. And I mean, actually, quite apart from the fact that they might already be experiencing mental health difficulties, the whole thing of getting an autism diagnosis is quite a big deal. And actually, quite often, people have a whole range of emotions that come up for them over the following years, which could do with just some someone to speak you know, talk through it with, but also potentially mental health support in how to handle this massive potential reframing of their life, and also all of the other implications that might come alongside that. Other things that can help, obviously, is that, and this is more broad as well, I suppose, is that mental health services need to be properly trained so that practitioners actually know more about autism in a way that is sort of non-pathologizing and from the autistic perspective from our frame of reference as autistic people. And I would sort of add to that, really, that it's quite important that people can access practitioners who are neurodivergent themselves and who are autistic themselves, something that I think could be and is likely to be really valuable and helpful for some people is being able to access, have sort of support from other autistic people who are further down the line, who have realise that they're autistic for longer, may preferably have access to an autistic community, so that it doesn't just feel like, you know, here is a diagnosis, go off now, goodbye, which is basically what happens to most people at the moment. So another one of the recommendations by Amaze was securing funding for support, support services that are doing, you know, some great work in improving the lives of autistic people such as maybe existing one-stop shops. Were there any specific services Amaze identified that are doing this type of work? Yeah, so, I mean, that was kind of the autism one-stop shops was one of the sort of things that services that we identified as already doing really good work. Although, having said that, sort of, there was a program of one-stop shops across Scotland, I'd say, like, started probably a couple of decades ago at this point. And, you know, it was one of those things where it was a sort of one-off government project, here is a bunch of funding, and there is no more continuous funding. And, and not all of those one-stop shops survived, not, one of, not all of them did well. The services we were particularly pointing to and that we actually asked people about that, the best feedback we got were, in Scotland, the Autism Initiatives one-stop shops, which there's three in the country at the moment. And I think the thing that sort of helped them stand out, even though they're not autistic-led and, you know, there there are criticisms I can make of them, but I think the thing that really helped them stand out was that they operate with a good understanding and, I think, good allyship towards autistic people. They now hire a lot of autistic staff and also they offer sort of flexible, flexible support in a way that I think other services don't really. So I think that they, and actually now some of them also offer uh, support from pre, from diagnosis to post-diagnosis onwards, which is a sort of nice joined up thing that should be happening, really. So that was one example. That was something that we were particularly pointing to as, look, this is a service that is working well, it can be improved, but we would like to see more of it because it's very hard to improve a service, a service that's fighting for survival. 
Now, beyond your work with Amaze, you're a counselor yourself, and I read that you do something that I think is really helpful in that you bring the outdoors, nature, art, and creativity into your therapy work. How have you seen these types of activities to be helpful for the folks you support? Oh, I mean, there's just so much in there, isn't there? <laughs> and as, I was thinking kind of this is, there's so many parts of this question in a way, but I think the big word in there is creativity. I think that therapy and creativity are very integrally linked. Like, I think that partly that's about flexibility. I mean, creativity is about flexibility and about kind of being able to work with difficult things in all kinds of different ways. And I guess another word that's kind of tied to that in my mind is playfulness. So, and I don't mean that in a sort of flippant way. But I think that, you know, if we're able to think about ideas and feelings and be light and playful with them, that can encourage us to be creative and curious. And that is a really nice way to sort of start to be able to approach things that feel intractable and that feel big and heavy. And it's a really good way to sort of build the relationship as well. I work in a very relational way, so... I think the core part of therapy to me is to do with sort of participating in this relationship, both of us, and and that's leading to a space for transformation. That's sort of creativity um, in the broad sense. Art and outdoors, I think, come out of that, really. I've unfortunately not had yet as much opportunity as I'd like to sort of do loads of work outdoors, partly just because... I'm kind of starting my career as a therapist. I've done a little bit of work outdoors and I've done a little bit more work incorporating the outdoors while indoors. So some of that is about kind of talking about place, talking about places that are special to people, doing visualizations that involve thinking about nature. Actually, at times I've worked with people online as well where they've been outdoors. So they've always almost like taken me to nature <laughs> and shown me spaces that are important. I think one of the really powerful things about nature and the outdoors is that therapy is traditionally, you know, where you have two people sitting in a room with a tissue box in the middle and plant in the corner. It's a very controlled environment. And it's controlled, you know, because people feel like this needs to be controlled, this needs to be contained. But actually, real life is not contained. The real context that people live in is out in the real world. So I think, you know, there are other ways to contain that relationship and to be safe, but in the context of the real world, which allows the person to, you know, just exist <laughs> and have a relationship that isn't pulled out of the context of everything that they're dealing with so for example we're you know outside and there's a loud noise and they react to that noise you know that is part of their real experience of the world and how they react to that and how they explain that to me and how I react to them is a real relationship and uh, other things about being outdoors that I think is important is that uh, if somebody was coming to say a therapy room where I'm working for a service they don't own that space. They can't come back to that space. They can't reflect in that space. I have arguably more power in that space. Whereas if we're out in the woods, they can come back to that wood any time. 
it's their woods as well as my woods. They don't need you to go back there. They could go back themselves. Absolutely, exactly. So I think it's just, it changes the power dynamics and it makes, I quite like this word I came across from a wild therapist called Nick Totten, who I'm quite into. It makes the context more boundless. That's the word that he used. There's just a lot more potential for the person to take ownership of their space and do stuff with it. I love how you talk about creativity. How much do you think um, the energy of the person you're supporting, the client, goes into how creative you are with that individual? I think energy is a huge part of autistic communication. So, I'm just wondering how the energy that you receive from the person that you're supporting, how that affects your session or time with them. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, I think there's something very magical sometimes about that, the energy that comes out of autistic connection and just kind of autistic enthusiasm in general. And definitely that's something that I feel like just, it's energy that pours into that space between us, into the relationship. Like one of my favorite things in a counseling session is when somebody, you know, shares an analogy that we then both play with. Like, you know, there's an image and we both just bounce ideas around with that image and suddenly it's become something that's meaningful in a different way and and that's creativity and playfulness as well. It's just, there's definitely a sort of real aliveness about it, I think. And, you know, to be fair, like, that's, I don't think that's restricted to autistic folks, but there's something about the sort of excitement and rapport that two people who can connect in a way that's sort of maybe seen as atypical in the outside world, that can be a really big and exciting and transformational thing. Now, one area of counseling that I think is particularly troubling is when counselors just look at someone's autistic identity and don't consider how being autistic intersects with their other identities, things like gender, sexuality, and ethnicity. What would be your advice to counselors in supporting autistic people in all of their identities? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think in a way, it's funny because at the moment, I would argue that most counsellors don't recognise people's autistic identities, but also in terms of what you were saying, like they might instead just see a person, what they think an autistic identity looks like. So they all might, oh, well, yes, um, of course you would be ruminating your autistic rather than trying to really understand. And that's where all of the other factors, including other intersection, uh, intersecting identities come in. So, I mean, what I would argue is that it's really important for counsellors to learn about all of these things, to learn about diversity, to expand their imaginations into how humans can experience the world. So go on loads of courses led by people from all kinds of different backgrounds, read about people, watch films, talk to people, but then hold that knowledge really lightly. So, like, I've come across counsellors who... Well, I think there are counsellors who do a lot of training, but then kind of that knowledge almost overrides the identity and the experiences of the client. And then equally, there are other counsellors who don't really feel like training is important because all they want 
is the client to tell them what it's like. And I think both of those are going too far in different directions. What you want is somewhere in the middle where you're not putting all of the labor on the person in front of you to explain to you, for example, what being trans means or like what having a meltdown is. But at the same time, uh, so you have some of that sort of knowledge already, but at the same time, you're able to hold it lightly and see the person so that when they say, oh, yeah, but my meltdowns aren't like that, you're able to not double down. You can go go with on and try and try and understand what meltdowns feel like for them. Now, uh, how can people learn about you uh, beyond this interview? I am online in lots of places. So I can be found on Medium as Sonny Hallett. I do a bit of writing around therapy and autism and various other things as well, gender identity quite a bit. I'm on Twitter as Scrap Paper Tiger, and I have a website now under autisticmentalhealth.uk forward slash Sonny. Sometimes people may not be interested in counseling for whatever reason, but are interested in possibly conferences or trainings regarding uh, autism or the autistic experience. There are so many trainings out there these days, so are there maybe some questions people should think about when determining if they should spend their time and money on a specific training? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think one of the big things that I really encourage people to do is check if the training is run by autistic people. And also, you know, check what is the background of the autistic people who is running the training. Like, quite one of the sort of more problematic things I see sometimes is the training might be run by, say, a couple of non-autistic professionals and one autistic person who they've brought along to talk about their own story. And I think it's really important that the expertise, where possible, comes from autistic people. Other things to look out for, I mean, language. I tend to be more suspicious of trainings that use for things like people with autism or pictures of puzzle pieces, because that suggests to me that they've not engaged with the autistic community and what the sort of broad preferences are. I tend to be sort of more worried about trainings that use pathologizing language that talk about autism as a deficit or a disorder. And I am more hopeful when I see training that really looks like it's understanding the nuances of autistic experience, particularly if it's also placing that in the context of neurodiversity and it's using the language, it's using the words neurodiversity and neurodivergence correctly. That's quite important as well. I have a short guide to how to find good training on the autisticmentalhealth.uk site. Um, it's mostly aimed at counsellors, but I think probably the information in there is relevant for other people as well. I run a bit of training myself, so I think people should come to that. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I think it's actually really important people hear a range of autistic voices. So, like, if they're able to go to training by different autistic people, um, and actually, you know, go to training by with different neurodivergences as well, people with ADHD, people with other backgrounds, that will all really help with kind of um, broadening the sense of understanding and diversity and how to start to think about all of this. Well, Sunny, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much for making time to talk with me today. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much to Sunny for the conversation. 
to learn more about Sunny, please check out the link in the podcast description for this episode. And if you have an interest in learning more about how Autism Personal Coach can help you to get your needs met and your desires fulfilled, then book a free call with me today. A link for the free call can be in the podcast description for this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it, so they could have the same enjoyable experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.